You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thanks for downloading our podcast today. It has been a minute since we are all last together, but Advancing Our Church is back from the summer, and we have a terrific season planned for you with some wonderful guests. Today, we're going to talk with Father Benjamin Roberts, the author of a book on homiletics called The Voice of the Bridegroom, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing his story. But first, this is our 100th episode, and I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has participated in making Advancing Our Church what it has become today, a tremendous resource for education, sharing best practices, and really helping our listeners gain new insights into advancing the mission of our church. I'm so grateful to all of our listeners for your constant support each week and for our many guests who have made this podcasting journey so very rewarding for me. Changing Our World is so honored to produce this podcast and provide these resources, and I am so grateful to our CEO, Brian Crimmins, and the whole team at CW for their continued support of this show. You know, as I record this episode, it is the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, on which we celebrate Mary's birthday. And so today we honor and we thank Mary for saying yes to God. You know, it reminds me that when we say yes to Christ, that we can't possibly know the implications that it will have on our life and the lives of others, not only now, but certainly in the future. Mary's yes began all of that for us. And so I invite you today to renew our mission to advance our church together. Now, let's get to work. This week, I had the opportunity to talk with Father Benjamin Roberts via Zoom about many topics, but I think you're really going to enjoy not only his own story of conversion to our faith, but also how his journey as a priest has enhanced his preaching. He talks about the priest's spousal relationship with his parish and how this has a tremendous impact not only on his ability to preach, but maybe even more basic, his ability to connect to the people of his parish. I'm very excited to bring you this conversation today. And so, without further ado, here's Father Benjamin Roberts. Well, welcome to Advancing Our Church. It's great to be back. This is... uh, by way of introduction, our our 100th episode, which is very exciting. We have a very special guest, Father Benjamin Roberts. Welcome, Father. So glad to have you here today. It's good to be here, Jim. So Father Roberts is a priest of the Catholic Diocese of Charlotte. He's a pastor of Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church in Monroe. He holds a doctorate in preaching from the Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. He serves as an adjunct professor of theology for St. Joseph's College of Maine, and is the author of the new book, The Voice of the Bridegroom. We're going to talk about all of that today. Welcome, Father. It's so great to have you. Just for the the, uh, kind of background for our listeners, um, I've discussed many times that I'm a candidate for the permanent diaconate in the Diocese of Allentown, and I first got to know Father on a couple of workshops that he did for our class and a couple of classes that he's taught on homiletics. And I've really enjoyed your, uh, your lectures and your book, Father, so very excited to have you here on the show today. Again, it's wonderful to be here, and it's a, it's a joy to always work with with some of my former students or and current students, for that matter. Exactly, exactly. I think we're having you back before this before my journey is done. So that's great. So, Father, uh, one of the things that we have in common is that you are also a convert to Catholicism, and 
I thought just for the benefit of our listeners, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own faith journey and uh, and how you how you found uh, your vocation into the priesthood. Well, you know, uh, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church. Uh, I was three months old, and in fact, I was baptized at the Easter Vigil in uh, 1977. I was three months old at that point. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, they determined or discovered in the midst of the pre-baptism class that my father had never been baptized. And so my father was baptized at the same liturgy that I was baptized at. I found out later that uh, recently some people had just come back from the Holy Land, this little Episcopal church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, there was a bottle of water from the Jordan River uh, that was used for the baptism. And uh, then when I was five, we moved to Lancaster, South Carolina. It's about 45 minutes from Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And around sometime when I was seven or eight, we became Lutherans, which I kind of regarded as Episcopalians who could sing. (laughs) And uh, always became fascinated by the liturgy and had a very clear plan from the time I was about five as to what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be president of the United States. And I wrote my congressman asking for an appointment to West Point when I was eight. And uh, that was my plan up until the end of high school. And I was very involved in the Lutheran church where I grew up. And uh, we would do these things called Youth Sundays. And on Youth Sundays, the youth basically got to lead the whole liturgy. So they were dividing things up and they would say, well, you do this and you do this and you do this. And they'd point to you, you preach. And you do this and you do this and you do this and you preach. So several years of this goes on. And by the time I was uh, ended my junior year of high school, I really thought, I said, you know, I think this is what God is asking. And so I uh, was... Uh, kind of setting my course on becoming a Lutheran minister. And a number of things happened. And eventually I wind up at Lenore Ryan College, uh, which is a Lutheran school in North Carolina. And I was introduced to Ignatius of Antioch in a course on early church history. And reading the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch, uh, I started to notice, I said, this does not look like what we are doing. And so I made a list of 23 reasons to stay Lutheran. And over the next two and a half years, crossed them all off. And finally, Uh, one evening I drove to the Catholic parish in Statesville, North Carolina, where I was living at the time. I knocked on the door of the parish of the rectory that, which was right there. And the priest opened the door and I said, I wish to be received into the fullness of the church. And he said, come on in. And (laughs) that's a very formal way of, 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 uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, uh, well, I actually, um, as I understand it, uh, father Richard John Newhouse, the late father Richard John Newhouse said that he sought to be received into the fullness of the church. And I knew some people who had known Newhouse. And so that was, that was the statement I made. So I went through a, a program of, of formation and was actually received into the Catholic church on the evening of October 30th, so the night before Reformation Day Mm. in uh, 1999, and uh, already at that point thinking about priesthood, already at that point thinking about priesthood. And so um, a number of years later, a few years later, bouncing a little and looking around, I had entered religious life with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. I was with them for three years and uh, then discerned really that I thought God was calling me to be a parish pastor parish priest. And so I uh, returned to my home diocese, the Diocese of Charlotte. I was sent to to, uh, graduate theology at uh, St. Charles Seminary in Philadelphia, where a number of good priests of Allentown lived across the hall from me. (laughs) And were my my classmates. And so um, I was ordained in 2009 and spent my first year at uh, 
St. Paul the Apostle Church in Greensboro in the next two years at Salisbury, uh, North Carolina at Sacred Heart Parish there. And then I've been pastor of Our Lady of Lourdes since 2012. Great. Beautiful story. So, Father, it's a couple of things that really st- stuck out to me. I mean, you, you've been involved, maybe not the Catholic Church, but you were involved in your faith from a very young age. So it sounds like God had his hand on you from the very beginning. It, it had seemed so. One of my good friends from uh, preschool, in fact, hmm. um, her her mother was always, she always said that she was kind of difficult on me. She was always tough on me. Yeah. And uh, she told her, my my friend, her daughter, she said, well, the reason I was always so tough on him challenging for him was because the moment he stepped on my driveway as a five-year-old, I knew God had marked him. <laughs> Neat. Wow. And, and I heard that, um, I, I heard, I, I heard that statement years later and I was like, huh? Hmm. So, so really there is no option here. It's the, yes. <laughs> it, if the charismatics and the Protestants and the Catholics all see something similar. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, there, there was always a great, a great love for the faith, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, but that doesn't come without challenge. Mm-hmm. That doesn't come without, you know, the, the, the teenage and otherwise existential wrestling of, is this true? Yeah. Is this real? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I have parents in my congregation who will say, well, my 13 year old says they don't know if they believe in God. I said, yeah, that's what it means to be 13. You know, uh, so that's the existential. We all have to do the existential crisis kind of work in the faith, and we all we all need those moments and and to walk through those and to uh, to make that walk in faith step by step and day by day. Yeah, and and not just thirteen, but sometimes nineteen and twenty five year olds have those same challenges. It's depending on when they and forty four and thirty you know and all of them. You got it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, I had, you know, similar situation being brought up in the church. And then, um, you know, at, when I was 12, we converted to Catholicism as a family. Um, so you were much, you were a little bit older mm-hmm. than I was, and, and you did this on your own. But there was an exercise you mentioned of writing a list that struck a, a, a memory for me, because when, um, when I told my parents that I wanted to be Catholic, they asked me if I could write down 10 reasons why I wanted to, tr- to be converted to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had kept that paper. I mean, maybe they have it somewhere stuck in a notebook or a file. Um, but but I, I sat down with my dad on the bed and and we, we read through the list, uh, just the two of us in my room. And um, the last one, I had really struggled with this because I said, I kept thinking as I'm writing the list. I want to do this because I feel like this is what God wants me to do. But then I thought, well, if I write that down, that's going to sound silly. My dad's going to say, well, how do you know what God wants you to do? Not that he was like that, but I just kept wrestling with that in my own mind. And I put that as the last one. And he read through the list and he said, hmm. He said, if you hadn't written that last one down, I probably wouldn't have let you become Catholic because that means you're having a conversation with God about this. And I'm not going to stand in the way if you and God feel that this is the way Mm -hmm. you should go. So there is something about writing that list and really putting it on paper and looking at it that makes it more real mm-hmm. and visceral. So beautiful. And it takes the challenges seriously. It does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I, I also saw recently back in the spring of this year, you were on the Catholic TV network. I think you've been a couple different places where you were talking about as pastor of Our Lady of Lords in Monroe, you've made some artistic renovations to your building uh, that kind of caught the attention of the media. Tell us a little bit about that. 
So um, when I arrived in 2012, uh, there was no paint at all in the building and clear windows. Wow. Uh, and um, and so one of the first things that happened, uh, you know, my I, I was a brand new pastor and I said, well, you know, I don't touch anything for five years. That's what you do. You don't touch anything for five years. That didn't happen that at didn't all. That didn't last. <laughs> no. Uh, so what happened, uh, the first thing that happened was we had stained glass windows put in. And that happened. So 2012, I arrive. The stained glass windows actually go in on October 30th, the day of my convert, the anniversary of my conversion on October 30th, 2013. Mm. And uh, there were 24 clear windows in the church. And during Lent that first year, I was making the Stations of the Cross with the community. Actually, we do them twice in English and in Spanish. So I was doing them twice on, on Friday nights in that first Lent. And I noticed that there were 24 windows. Mm-hmm. And by the time, I, so from the first station all the way to the to the last, I realized there's 24 windows. There's 24 elders who surround the throne of the Most High God in heaven and cast down their crowns and cry, holy, holy, holy. We could have 24 saints, 12 men, 12 women, every vocation. So by the time I got to the end of the Stations of the Cross, I was done. I yeah. had it. And so I started talking with a couple of people and I said, what do you think about this? That's a great idea. That's a great idea. We should do this. And then I said to the finance council, whose job it is to keep young pastors from spending more money than they should. <laughs> like these are the people who are supposed to be like the voice of reason. Right. And they said, we think this is a great idea. Okay, wonderful. Then I went to a meeting and saw my bishop and my bishop was pastor of my parish. He was pastor of the parish when he was appointed bishop. Hmm. And I said to him, uh, you know, we're looking at doing these these windows, 24 windows, 12 men, 12 women, all saints. And I just couldn't resist. And I said, and your excellency, we, we would invite you if you wanted to donate one of the windows because of your deep and abiding connection to Our Lady of Lourdes, being that you were the beloved pastor of Our Lady of Lourdes when you were elevated to the Episcopacy. I believe it was was 10 years ago or five, you know, so many years ago this month. And he looked at me and we were at a meeting about a capital campaign. And he said, Father Benjamin, what you are doing is called making the case. (laughs) Very good. And you are doing it well. How much do you think one of these windows would cost? And I thought, oh, my goodness. All I have to do is reel him in. We're talking about that. So actually, one of the windows was donated. The window of St. Peter was donated by the Bishop of Charlotte. Beautiful. And so uh, those are the first things that went in. And then I, I looked at the, the walls for the next couple of years because I didn't want I wanted one vision. I wanted to have one thing. I'd been in parishes where you could see different artistic things representing either different moments in the parish's life or different pastors or different committees. And it kind of looked more like a living room. And I said, a living room is wonderful in a home, but not in a church. And so I looked at the staring at the walls for several years. And I said, well, the first thing we'd want is the the Lamb of God behind the tabernacle. And then it became the Lamb of God behind the tabernacle. We had these two giant walls. I said, we want to have a mural of the baptism of Jesus. And on the other side, the transfiguration, the two places uh, where we hear the voice of the father declaring the son, the beloved. And uh, so over, I found an artist who had worked in a couple of parishes in the diocese. And I said, I have a blank canvas. And she came and over several years, we've done all of that inside. What got the attention of the television stations was the mural that we just put in the narthex in January. 
And um, my parish is about 90% Mexican. But also, you know, if you keep in mind that generation three is being born, so English is actually the majority language. Mm-hmm. And I said, we need something. And I've been preaching for years about unity among the people of God, unity among us. And so the idea that I had for this uh, mural in the narthex was an image of Our Lady. And on one side would be Juan Diego. And on the other side would be Bernadette. And uh, so the parish is Our Lady of Lourdes, but we have this gigantic Hispanic community. And I said, you know, here's what we will have, all children of the same mother, because at the heart of the spirituality of my parish are two Marian visionaries, two people from the peripheries, probably couldn't read on the outside, yet precious in the eyes of Our Lady. And so the image of Our Lady is the one that's right behind me. I, I took, a, took that picture before they mounted the mural. And so I keep her behind me. And uh, so that, that whole idea of, of all of us being united together and yet bringing our cultures together, because it's not, not what Bishop Barron says about beige Catholicism or, or beige cultural. It's this celebration, this, this symphony of culture and symphony yeah. of faith. Uh, because that's, you know, that's the vision of God's kingdom. It's a symphony. That's the vision of God's kingdom. It's a symphony. And so that symphonic unity. And so the, what I talk about with our building then is that our building preaches in the language of beauty, that it preaches in the language of beauty. And that became like central, central to everything. I mean, preaching from the pulpit, which obviously I am passionate about, uh, but also, uh, that we can we can preach in this language of beauty and and allow even even if you walk into the church and it's silent, the building's still preaching. Mm-hmm. What I oh, found wonderful. interesting was that the right after we put the windows in, almost all of the confirmation candidates picked their saints from the windows. So perfect. Oh, yeah. Wow. And um, I know you did a walking tour for the Diocese of Charlotte's YouTube page. We'll have to make sure we get a link of that a link from that and put that in our when we post. Yes. This episode. Yeah. 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 The uh, the the Catholic News Herald, our, our diocesan newspaper, did a splendid, uh, just a magnificent job, both in English and in Spanish. You can can mm-hmm. see the uh, can can see that tour. You captured uh, you captured more of the community and you brought forth the faith in, in a more um, visual way. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that that only adds to the to the worship and to the sense of community and belonging, too. Did you I'm curious from a fundraising perspective, since obviously you're so good at stating the case for support. Did, did you have to actually do a campaign for this or did you just kind of. So uh, for for the windows, we allowed donations. Yeah. So people and I said, you have to call the office. And mm-hmm. because I didn't want anybody telling me in the narthex, yeah, I'll take a window. I said, yeah. everybody's got to call the office. That way it was, was set that way. And I don't, it's not a wealthy parish. We're a community of relatively small donations. Yeah. And it was in three days that all the windows were sold. Amazing. As far as all of the artwork, I decided that I did not want, I, I did not want to go to people as I'm sure I could have. Uh, both in my parish and outside, because, you know, as a priest, you meet people and say, anything I ever do for your parish, let me know. And I, I said, the artwork in the church will be the work of the whole community. The artwork of the church will be the work of the whole community. No one's name is going on anything. You give to the collection and we will go from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very, very fortunate with that. Uh, now, also, we worked with the artist and said, you know, here's how we'd like to do that. So the artist said, she said, it was wonderful. She said, I basically had a consistent income from you for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, 
but no, so we didn't, there was no campaign. There was no, no special fundraising. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when people would ask, how do we donate? I said, donate to the collection, donate to the collection. We will. uh, And, and I also was very careful to make sure that, you know, we did not go, we did not impoverish ourselves or cut from other places, other important ministries in order to put the artwork in. Sure. Sure. But it's also a beautiful uh, reminder to parishioners about stewardship, about mm-hmm. what they what they give in the collection can further the mission of the church in a variety of different ways. And this was absolutely a direct, direct result of that. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, w- I was thrilled to be able to say the parish never went into debt for any of the artwork. Mm-hmm. We never went into debt for any of the artwork. And I didn't go to individual people and say, I need you to, I, I'd like to invite you to participate in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted it to be the work of the whole community. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So, uh, Father, you have a kind of a unique doctorate, I think. I, I don't know how many folks have a doctorate in preaching. What led you in this direction? And of course, uh, that leads to the topic of, of, of your book. But uh, how? How did you um, how did you kind of come to the decision you'd like to really specialize in this area of ministry? Well, from the time I entered seminary, I mm-hmm. wanted to be a canon lawyer. Wow. Okay. <laughs> from the time I entered <laughs> seminary, I wanted to be a canon lawyer. That's you know I did I did an extra course in college on the philosophy of law and all oh, of wow. these mm-hmm. all of these you know all of these things. Then at the end of my second assignment, I yeah. you know they asked what do you want to do. I said, well, I could go be a pastor or um, I'd be happy to go study canon law. Yeah. And my pastor, who was on the personnel board, said, Really? You're interested in canon law? My pastor at the time was the judicial vicar of the diocese. Hmm. And my bishop had been the judicial vicar of the diocese. And so when both of them said, Really? You're interested in this? I thought, <laughs> God doesn't will this. <laughs> so one day I was having a talk with my sister, um, and she is. She and my mother have this this really, really, neither of them Catholic, have this really, really clear sense of my vocation at times. And I was talking with my sister and I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about maybe I can get to do some further studies. And she said, well, I guess you want to be a church lawyer, right? And I said, well, maybe, but but there's this doctoral program in preaching. Um. And, and I'm kind of thinking about that. And she said, big brother, that's what you should be doing. That's what you should be doing. Mm. And I went to, I needed the bishop's permission to apply for the program or wanted to get it. And he said, yes, this is what we think you should be doing. And uh, now I, I, when I was in seminary, we, there was a homiletics award every year and I, I won it every year. So I probably should have been thinking more about this yeah, sure. for a little longer. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's kind of how that happened. I wanted to do more study. I loved being a pastor. So I wasn't the, the option of going away to school for a couple of years simply wasn't wasn't going to happen. So Aquinas Institute is the only Catholic institution in the entire world that has a doctorate in preaching. Got it. Hmm. And so I uh, applied to their program and started in 2014. The interesting thing about that, I had been I was uh, what six, five years ordained at that point. And that's kind of a marker for priests. And I was sensing the need to go back to school, to do some more study, to really do some renewing stuff. I was really excited about, about doing that. And that's, 
that's kind of how that happened. I, I always said that uh, I wanted to be a lawyer and I wound up being a trial attorney because the, the homeless is actually the one who makes the case. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so that, that's kind of how that, that came about and yeah. recognized. I said, no, this is, this is what the Lord, Lord has desired. And mm-hmm. when I checked with former faculty members and, and parishioners to write references, they said, this, no, this is what you should be doing. Yeah, you have a wonderful talent in it, and your your family and your uh, classmates recognized that early on. It's interesting, as I was reading the book a little bit, it, you indicated that, I think it was in the introduction, that you had kind of hit what you felt like was a bit of a wall or like a seven-year itch, where you were losing a little bit of the fire you had for preaching, and that maybe this was this was a way to work through that. Tell us, and you describe, you kind of, you, um, it was almost like the seven-year itch that people describe in marriage. It's kind of, the, you know, you mentioned this, this need for renewal. I think we've all, either whether, whether we've been in a job or ministry or whatever we've done for a long time, we, we need that. We need something new or something fresh to revitalize our passion for it. Tell us a little bit about that. So priests, it turns out, hit the same benchmarks as married couples. Sure. 2, 7, 13, 18, 25. <laughs> we hit the same benchmarks. If you look at when guys leave ministry, it's the same time when couples get divorced. Wow. Almost uh, 2, 7, 13, 18, 25. Mm. And I remember that right after I'd started the doctoral program, uh, I was burning out. And it wasn't simply because of schoolwork. I was, I, I just, and, and the, the symptom that I saw was I stopped prepping Sunday homilies. Oh, I was still preaching every week and I was still getting by because I could, Mm -hmm. but I was no longer being nourished. Mm -hmm. And I talked with one of the, uh, actually I, my neighboring pastor, uh, one of my neighboring pastors is the priest who answered the door those years ago when I said, I wish to be received in the fullness of the church. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, I said, I don't know what's going on. And he said, you're a good priest. You'll be fine. And he said, wait, how long have you been ordained? And I said, I just celebrated my sixth anniversary. So I'm in my seventh year. He said, oh, that's normal. Take a couple of days off. You'll be fine. <laughs> okay. A couple of months later, I'm talking with the other priest at our priest retreat and discovered that guys who were ordained less than five years had no idea what I was talking about. And everybody who was ordained more than 10 years knew exactly what I was talking about. Sure. Several priests I talked to said that year seven of their ministry was one of the worst of their lives right around that time. So it all hit. And then I was talking with some, some friends of mine, a married couple. And I said, you know, it turns out this. And they looked at me and they said, yeah, seven years. It's just like marriage. And so at that moment, I had this, this insight of that the connection in preaching uh, or the connection in ministry was so much connected with this experience of marriage. And John Paul II had given us this notion of the priest as bridegroom of the church, which had always been kind of foundational for me. And and so I was thinking about that theologically, but now I had something pastorally and practical that needed addressing. And what we find in preaching is that, you know, once you get through the three-year cycle twice, then it's like, what more is there to say? Right. And you got to find a new a new way to approach it because it's very easy to settle into you know what what's the difference between a rut and a groove? Mm. Like I mean, they're, you know, ex- existentially they're quite different. <laughs> Physically, they're not. 
Right. <laughs> um, and so it's pretty easy to, especially with preaching, with all of the responsibilities. As a pastor, I could easily have a week where I would spend more time looking at a roofing contract than I would at the gospel. That is not me suggesting that pastors shouldn't be looking at roofing contracts and everything else. I completely believe that our responsibility for some of the temporal affairs of the parish is what keeps our preaching grounded. Mm. It would be very, if I didn't have to think about the light bill and everything else in my church, then I'm not sure it would occur to me that you have to think about the light bill in your house when I'm approaching the scriptures. Very good. Yeah. Um, Augustine says that, um, you know, while he hated all of the temporal stuff that he had to do, it was part of what kept his preaching grounded. And so uh, seeking this sense of renewal, and, and then what might be a sense of renewal for priests in their second five years of ministry? And so that's how the project develops that way. So I have this theological insight of priest as bridegroom of the church, and then how does that impact preaching? And then what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, priests who've been preaching for a little while, especially pastors, because like I'm on my fourth trip through the lectionary now with this, this congregation. You know, we're all at different points now than we were nine years ago. There might be insights or scriptural scriptural exegesis that is useful, but the fact of the matter is we're at a very different moment in our life and in our walk together. And I wanted to think about how do we deepen that relationship? And so what convinced me and what renewed my preaching uh, was what one of the uh, people who, who Dr. Chap, who, who's put on the back of my book, she said, this is not a how-to book, it's a for whom. And when you move preaching from the how-to to the for whom, then it replaces preaching in the context of a relationship. And when you recognize, as, as you've heard me say many times, you know, we, we preach in the context of several relationships. We have a relationship to the sacred text. We have a relationship to the church. We have a relationship to the Trinity, but we also have a relationship to a particular community. I, I remember starting to write my homilies when I was a new priest and thinking, I want this homily to be preached in any parish in the world this weekend, and that would do just fine. And I, I now think, wow, that's really not what I should be about. <laughs> I'm speaking to a particular group of people you know, at a particular moment. So that's where the renewal piece came in. And as I deepened my relationship and my understanding of the relationship between the priest and the community, and how preaching becomes then an expression of spousal love, that it is the love of Christ that he pours out for his bride. And that preaching is, in fact, an integral part of that act. Um, I, I, I talk with deacons and I say, you know, in, in the context of this metaphor, the deacon is the friend of the bridegroom. The deacon's the friend of the bridegroom. He gets to sit next to the bridegroom. He's allowed to talk to the bride. And what does he talk about? He talks about the bridegroom's love for the bride. So all of those things come into renewal and that becomes the dissertation and then a book. Yes, you know you you the the spirituality of the bridegroom. You say that came from uh, Saint Saint John Paul, one of his encyclicals. Can you tell us a little bit more about that piece of it? So um, actually, so John Paul II. If if you look at the, the theology of John, Saint John Paul II, mm -hmm. it is nuptial theology. Mm -hmm. Like nuptiality would be the key key lens that you would use to read John Paul II. Sure. Much like doxology, praise of God is probably how you might want to read uh, Benedict. And I think either mission or mercy, probably for Francis. These are just my, my thoughts on that. 
Sure. Uh, John Paul II in Pastores Dabo Vobis, uh, which is the document on priestly formation, is far more than simply a document on how we're going to run a seminary. It's this vision of the ministerial priesthood. Right. And when he talks about the, the different dimensions of the priesthood, and he introduces the spousal dimension. The church has basically always held that the bishop uh, was the spouse of the diocese, the bridegroom of the diocese, which is why the bishop wears a ring. We hadn't talked so much about the priest as sharing in the spousal relationship of the church. And so what John Paul II says is that, you know, the priest manifests the bridal, the spousal love of Christ for his church. And then something even more says the church desires to be loved by the priest in the same exclusive manner in which she is loved by her Lord. Mm-hmm. And as I, as I reflected on that, both in seminary, and then that, that became a real, real driving force for me in thinking about it. So, you know, the, this, this idea of the loving relationship and I'm kind of convinced that most people, when they think about preaching, their understanding of preaching comes from who they believe the people in front of them are. You know, the vision of the people, of your hearers, impacts how you approach the ministry of preaching. So that, that understanding of the spirituality of the bridegroom. So what is the, what is the bridegroom? Well, it's exclusive. It is loving. It is nurturing. It is fruitful and it's stable and it's bonded. And how does that apply to the priest? You know, we can be, pastors can be transferred. I do make an argument in my book from, from Canon law that says, you know, the pastoral stability, the stability of the pastor seems to be a, uh, an important thing for us to look at more and more. Uh, when we're talking about stable, you know, fruitful preaching, but also the growth of not only of the parish, but of the priest, mm-hmm. you know, the longer we're in one place, actually, we have to grow. If we move every six years, we really only have to do six years of growth. True, uh, true. Well, and and also hopefully, you know, and I think I think the same analogy can be made and for other vocations, but hopefully the longer that you're at a place, the better you are there, right? The, the more you're able to bring to completion, whether it's identifying ministries or needs or or what have you, you can you can bring that vision to a reality. But it all comes from having that relationship. Is that where, I mean, in your studies of, of homiletics, is that where you you found that maybe priests and deacons, maybe they fell down where they, they didn't have that strong connection with their community. Is that, is that, is that the pitfall or is that just one of the pitfalls? I think that's one of the pitfalls. I think, you know, um, one, one of the things that I, as I've studied theology more and more, you realize that theology always starts from a per- particular perspective, mm-hmm. you know, so a theologian writes from a perspective and it's, and it's an insight yeah. that God has given and you kind of run from there. So I think relationality with the parish, with the community is certainly one of the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, a relationship to the text is another, uh, mm-hmm. a relationship to the church. And, you know, as we know, the the difficulties of relationships at different times between priests and bishops, you know, between dioceses and parishes, you know, th- those can be trying at times, uh, sure. like like all good family relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when we when we think about Yes, when we think about that relationship in preaching and really giving ourselves that the gift of self that we make in preaching is not simply a, a gift that's given of a text or of a message, mm-hmm. but it's a gift of a text or a message and good news to someone. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that's uh, why I say that the the nuptial vision of preaching aims at reception, not at proclamation. Right, proclamation is the step before reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also it also reminded me that um, you know I I can't determine exactly what people take from any homily. You know, the moment that I speak, I have surrendered the interpretation of my words. I have surrendered the interpretation of my words. I have, in fact, become vulnerable. And to do that uh, means that I have to first and foremost be vulnerable to God mm-hmm. and available to God. I remember reading a book a few years ago. Uh, it was a series of books, I think. And one of them included a, a, uh, a priest who was in the midst of his seven-year crisis or whatever. It was amazing how all of those things came together right around the time I hit year seven. <laughs> and it was... A priest, I think, looked at his congregation and says, just so you know, you're not my first love. And what he meant was God was his first love. Mm -hmm. The people were his greatest joy, but God was his first love. And I remember that being when when that became a real reality for me in my own spirituality and my own ministry, realizing that in a real sense, I and my parish community were going to get to grow up together. I and my parish community were going to get to grow up together mm-hmm. and that there was something incredibly beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. I said on my 10th anniversary, I said, here's what I've learned in 10 years. The celebration of a priest anniversary is the celebration of God's fidelity and that I have just as much been entrusted to you as you have been entrusted to me. Mm-hmm. We will grow in holiness and in, in relationship with Christ together because that's the only way it's going to work. I remember my first, the first priest retreat I went on after I was ordained. And the, the priest said, this is the main thing I remember from his talks. And he said he was a pastor of a parish in somewhere in Pennsylvania. And he said, a man he knew pretty well came up to him and said, you know, Father, you're a good priest. And he said, well, thank you. And he said, but you're never going to be a great priest. Okay. Said, what do you mean? He said, because you love us and we know that, but you won't let us love you. Oh. To be a great priest is to allow to be received and accepted by the people of God mm. and to allow that, that relationship to grow within its proper limits. Don't get me wrong, but I, I also have come to the conclusion that the difference between a good priest and a great priest is a good priest loves the people of God and a great priest loves these people of God. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Well, you know, it, it's interesting you say that. I was just having a conversation with my spiritual director um, for the diaconate just the other day. You know, we don't have any control over the assignments that we're going to be given. So uh, as as obviously priests don't either. Mm-hmm. So the kind of community that I might be stationed with might not be might not be the kind of community I grew up in or the kind of community I might have chosen for my family. It might be a different kind of community mm-hmm. with a different set of needs. And so, but God... God can be in that. And so I guess, you know, the, the part that I was praying through with my spiritual director is that I would be open to that experience so that, because why would these people be less worthy of my love than another community? Right. 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 And, and, or why would I make myself less available to them? Because maybe we didn't have as much in common, but, but I have, you have to find those commonalities, I mm-hmm. suppose, and allow yourself, like you're saying, allow yourself to be loved. Right. And that's where the discipline of congregational exegesis comes in. Mm. There's that whole section in there about knowing the bride yes. uh, in, in my book about how, how is it that we go about learning, knowing the bride? 
mm-hmm. you know, and um, I mean, in, in, in public speaking, there's that, that generic statement of know your audience. Well, yes, that's true. But, you know, we're not talking about the liturgical assembly or a parish community as an audience. Right. They're a relational partner. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a community, uh, a community gathered by faith and baptism who are configured by the waters of baptism at the core of their being as a as participants in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Yes. You know, the moment that you realize, wait, these aren't simply people who are listening to me. This is this is a participate. This is a priestly community. This is right. a pilgrim community. It's a prophetic community. It's all gathered together. <laughs> um, and so now I can learn, you know, some of the cultural uh, things I can learn about the and I, I talk in my book about how do we go about learning a community? Mm-hmm. How do we go about knowing a community and, and, and growing in that relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I said in one one talk or uh, class in the doctoral program, I said, well, I don't think there's anybody my age in the parish. And one of the permanent deacons in my class looked at me and said, that's not true. You need to go looking for them. Mm. He said, I just can't believe that's true. He said, there's probably not another priest in your parish, mm-hmm. but there, there are probably people who are, you know, what was I, 38 at the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, there are probably some 38-year-olds around there. Look around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at that moment, uh, you know, my the scales kind of fell from my eyes and I was like, oh, wow, this is this is much different. So it allowed, uh, a, you know, a greater understanding and a greater depth, of the complexity of a community. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you hear the stories that people tell mm-hmm. and you learn the concerns and you're you're able to look around at the monuments of the culture. Uh, both in the, you know, in the artwork and in the singing and in the activities and in the celebrations, all of those things come together uh, to kind of give us this constellation mm-hmm. of, of a community. Mm-hmm. And the more you understand that and the more you become part of it, the more you're able to bring good news into that context. Yeah. And to find the person of Jesus in, in those people. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, in one of your lectures, um, uh, maybe to talk, switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the tactical or practical suggestions that you make in preparing a homily. Mm-hmm. Um, you you made the analysis, you made the uh, analogy that um, that oftentimes when preachers or a homilist begins a homily, some somewhere in there, sometimes you like to tell a story or something that's relatable from the from the world, from from the secular world, from people's lives. But it's it's great to put that at the beginning of the homily and then go into the catechetical moment or into the into the ecclesial moment because you want to before you take off to the moon right you want to before you take off to the moon I forget how you put it uh, you want to make sure everybody's on the ship or in the boat or whatever something right. like yeah so so it's it's it depends on where the homily begins yeah so if the homily begins strict the the distinction between the world of the text and the world of the assembly. Yeah. And if you begin the homily in the world of the assembly and then take them into the text, mm-hmm. then they're already on board. If you yeah. start from the text, then you are coming from a foreign planet into their world, picking them up and then bringing them back. Yes. Uh, and so, and I never, I, I fought against that idea 
halfway through my doctoral program. I said, no, no, no. It's we start from Christ. We start from the word. And, and the, the, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when, when Dominicans who are uh, a good number of the faculty at Aquinas, you know, kind of are staring at a diocesan priest like, oh, they're going to burn me in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, but no, as, as, as you discover that it's not, you know, the story, the image isn't an attention getter. If it's, if it's, oh, a story to get their attention. No, that's a waste of words. Right. And kind of insulting. Mm -hmm. Um, But if the image or the experience draws people into, you know, an idea or a way of looking that we can now move into the text. Um, This past weekend, I, I started my homily with my father is the wisest man that I know. And I shared something that my father had said to me when I was in my early twenties. And I said, he's a wise father and his words are characterized by, you know, uh, clarity, charity, compassion, and brevity. I said, I I think I've modeled my preaching after my father's words, wisdom. And I said, as a wise father. And then I said, clarity, charity, compassion, and brevity characterize the words of James James is a wise father in God. And so that jumped us right into the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, finding, finding ways to bring the image from our experience. So I, li- I like to use images. I like to use common experiences. I don't like to use stories uh, so much personally. And the, the reason for that is, is because it brings us into the homily so we can go into the text, so that we can go into the, into the good news. Uh, and if it's going to be, you know, however we're going to approach the text, if we're going to use this as a as a moment of exhortation or consolation or catechesis, however we want to go there, uh, but we can get them on the ship, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but not simply getting their attention, but getting them into the into the worldview. So that, that's kind of that's kind of my my first thought as to how we enter into enter into the preaching. It allows people to uh, say, you know, I mean, you look at the, the preaching of Jesus, the, the parables are almost all from very, very common experience, mm-hmm. from their common experience, not necessarily ours. And that, that allows us to then enter more deeply. And, you know, w- once they hear the image that they relate to, now they trust you just one more step. Okay, I'll buy a ticket. I'll go on the, I'll go on this trip. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. What are some of the other tips you have that you would offer to maybe a homeless, a, a preacher who's listening to this podcast and some different things that they can find in your book? Uh, I'm not sure I say this in my book, but uh, first rule of preaching. I was I developed this one when I was in seminary. First rule of preaching. Don't try to prove how brilliant you are. <laughs> if you're smart, the people will know that. And if you're not, they'll know that, too. So there's no point in trying to prove it. (laughs) But the second thing is try to say something rather than everything. Try to say something rather than everything. Uh, I know I drive your drove your class nuts with my uh, requirements of my word count requirements on the practice homilies. 350 Uh, words. 350 (laughs) words. That's what you get. And the reason for that is, as I was taught, that one of the most important things is to control your material. Because if you control your material, then you're not going to wander away. You know, when you when we listen to when we when we hear what people comment about what do they like about preaching or what do they not like about preaching, and the main thing that they don't like is they wander too much. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if the homily is 40 years in the desert, <laughs> then, you know, we're, we're just running in circles for a while. So I, I think clarity of clarity of message, however you want to accomplish that. And there's lots of ways to do that, but the clarity of message, and that means that it has to be clear for the preacher. What is it that I intend to say? Mm-hmm. Now, I can't control what they receive. Homilies should not have learning goals. I mean, they might have learning goals for the preacher, but not for the assembly. It's like, you know, well, I talked about this particular doctrine, and I expect all of you to know that now. Well, no, I talked about this particular doctrine, and if that opened up something in your life where you experienced a moment of grace, then praise God, Mm -hmm. whether you understand what I was talking about with prevenient grace or not. If this, if this facilitated an encounter for you at this time, which prepared you then to, re- to participate in the Eucharist and receive the risen Lord, God is praised. Yes. Different from a lecture. And I think that's the chief difference from a lecture. You know, in a lecture, we have specific things that we want the assembly, the class to know at the end. With a homily, it's a little more propositional. You know, I can propose some things to you. I can invite your participation. On rare occasions, I can tell you, do this. I'm doing a little bit of that right now of, of you know, uh, I gave a homily a couple of weeks ago about talking about, and the image I used was babies crying in church. Mm-hmm. And I said, so what are we going to do when babies are crying in church? Well, you know what? I'm going to pray for somebody whose voice isn't here. We're going to use, every time you hear a child make some noise, you know, pray for somebody whose faith was known to God alone. You know, so every now and then we can give some concrete, practical things. I don't think those are good for every week. I think you can do them seasonally or things like that. Right. Uh, so don't try to prove how brilliant you are. Say something rather than trying to say everything. And then, you know, Christian preaching is good news. Christian preaching is good news. So if the only thing a preacher says is God loves you and invites to share in, invites you to share in his life. That's a beautiful homily. Mm-hmm. If the only thing they experienced was, I am loved by God, I am loved by God, and probably by this preacher. I'm loved by God and probably by this preacher. <laughs> and because this preacher loves me enough to tell me that God loves me. Yeah. And I will say, you know, 12 plus years as a priest, the main doctrine of the church that is not believed is that people are loved by God. Yeah. And when we, when we get to the point where someone experiences or believes sufficiently to say, I believe that I am loved by God. This is what John Chrysostom said of Paul. What did Paul know more than anything else? That he was loved by God. He was loved by Christ, which is why in Galatians, Paul doesn't say, God loves us. He says, no, God loves me. <laughs> He's not excluding everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think th- those are kind of the main uh, yeah. main things. And then, you know, the more one comes to know their community, the more one is able to bring good news and proclaim good news in the midst of that community. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, I, I love the book. Uh, it's called The Voice of the Bridegroom. I think... Um, one of the things that was nice in the back is, is you, you give kind of an outline of, of all the steps in preparing a homily, especially mm-hmm. for those of us who are new to it. 
I think is really important. And um, and what a beautiful image of of that spousal relationship and and, and bringing in the theology of Pope Pope John Paul II. Um, I, I got a lot out of it. So I, um, where can we find this book, Father? Uh, you can get the book directly from the publisher, uh, Whitfenstock out of Oregon. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's uh, th- those are the two places that I found it. Uh, so, or the three three places that I I have found it. So yes, it's it's been it's been an amazing kind of uh, journey. It's actually it was part of, part of kind of my pandemic uh, time when I was kind of locked in, and I said, "Gee, maybe I should look at getting my my dissertation published." And so mm-hmm. that that was part of my pandemic. I, I kind of call it pandemic literature. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there there are some silver linings that came out of this pandemic for sure. You know. Um, before I let you go, one of the speaking of the pandemic, I, I was watching another one of your interviews, and I I noted that you had a special devotion to Saint Dymphna. It's not a mm-hmm. not a saint that that many people are familiar with, but uh, it's a but you were doing, I believe, a perpetual no, novena for healing uh, to this saint. Please tell us yes, a little bit about so, that. So in in my parish, we we haven't been doing it lately. We need to pick it back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had a on Fridays we would pray this perpetual novena for healing. Uh, in honor of Our Lady of Lourdes, which is the name of the parish, uh, for physical healing, for Maximilian Kolbe, for healing from addictions. And then Dymphna is the patroness of those who suffer from depression, mental illness, neurological disorders, Alzheimer's, autism, anxiety, PTSD, and I throw in a whole bunch of other things for her. Wow, sure. Dymphna was an Irish princess. Uh, she was killed by her father when she was 15 years old. Hmm. And she was killed in Belgium. And the city in Belgium, Giel, became the center for the treatment of the mentally ill for about a thousand years. Hmm. Uh, I came to know St. Dymphna as I was coming to, I was becoming a Catholic. And uh, for a number of quite personal reasons, I have great devotion to her. And uh, I promised St. Dymphna when I entered seminary that if I got ordained to the priesthood, I would promote devotion to her and I would make pilgrimages to her shrine. And so for the last eight years, except for last year, uh, I've taken a busload of people to the National Shrine of St. Dymphna in Maslin, Ohio. And uh, there I was given by the, the rector of the National Shrine, I think one of the titles that I, I treasure most. And he said, no, Father Benjamin is the apostle of St. Dymphna. And uh, so uh, I have told lots and lots of people about her. Uh, My bishop has said that he has confirmed many, many dymphnas in the last 10 years, all of them in places that I have either been assigned or walked by. Uh, You know, we have uh, such a, such a deep uh, experience now uh, of mental illness and I think part of what Dymphna does is devotion to St. Dymphna uh, brings that out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. It brings uh, depression and anxiety and mental illness out of the shadows and gives a place in the church to say, yes, this is, uh, you know, this is a real, this is a real issue. And we want to be pastoral in our care for that. Um you know, I occasionally hear, well, mental illness is moral failure. I said, that's heresy. That's not true. Right. Uh, and it's harmful when you say that. It really is damaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I have, uh, when we, the first of the stained glass windows, the one that's right across from my chair is St. Dymphna. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can see her from my, I can see her from the celebrant's chair. Uh, and yes, that, that I did that interview with, I think, good Catholic it's on their YouTube page. So mm-hmm. we'll yeah. provide a link to that. It's, it's such an important topic, especially today. So many more people are dealing with 
because of being locked locked down in, in the pandemic, uh, more serious addictions and anxiety and depression, much more prevalent in our society. Fortunately, through you know, uh, different kinds of video conferencing, counseling has become much more available. But mm-hmm. it's nice to know there's a, a saint also that we can pray to for for guidance and for intervention. During and that. she is absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. She is absolutely wonderful. I will tell you that. Um, yes, I I keep lots. I keep her busy. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Father, it was wonderful having you on the podcast. So glad you could celebrate uh, my 100th episode with me. On our lady's uh, birthday. On our lady's birthday, exactly. That's right. Uh, The Feast of the Nativity. And and again, uh, Father Ben Roberts, it's the voice of the bridegroom. Father, where can they find you uh, on Facebook or on your website? Or email? so they can they can find the parish. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church Monroe is our parish Facebook page. Yep. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Father at fr underscore Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm on Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Father Benjamin 2009. I think. Okay. Uh, and then the parish website uh, for our parish is Our Lady Monroe. OurLadyMonroe.org. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. We'll put links to all that uh, in our show notes uh, of this episode. And again, Father, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you. It's been great to be with you, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I want to thank Father Roberts for being on our show this week. I will leave links in our show notes to his parish and how to purchase his book, The Voice of the Bridegroom. And if you'd like to view the full video presentation of our conversation, please visit the show's episode page on advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you're looking for a way to say thank you to Advancing Our Church this year, do me a quick favor. Leave us a rating on iTunes. That small show of support goes a long way and helps spread the word about our show. And if you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for more than two decades. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. I hope you have a terrific week. And if you happen to be in Orlando this week and you're going to the International Catholic Stewardship Conference, I hope you'll stop by booth 314 and say hello. And if not, we'll see you next week, same time here on advancingourchurch.com. Have a great week, everybody. Take care and God bless.